Um, so yes, this is Galatians chapter 5. Um, if you've got one of the church Bibles, it's on page 824. If you haven't got one and would like one, please raise your hand and someone will bring one to you. Uh, so Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 25, and we'll read on into chapter 6. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to someone else. For each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Good morning. That's better. Well, it's lovely to be back. It's um, four years, over four years since I stood here. Um, So uh, thank you for inviting me back. I bring greetings from Victoria Park Baptist Church and from Bristol Baptist College. And those of you who know me will know that I'm splitting my time between those two at the moment. It's lovely to see going to say old faces, old friends. (laughs) It's actually even more lovely to see people whose faces I don't know, um, because that shows that the church is growing. Uh, So I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. If you haven't got a Bible, it might be useful. So um, if you, you might want to grab one. One of the things I've been... Uh, am I coming, phasing in and out a bit? Yes. Is there anything I need to do at this end? Okay, fine. I'll just keep talking. One of the things that I've been doing this year at Bristol Baptist College is um, teaching preaching. Um, and I'll tell you that with a bit of trepidation. Um, and you can evaluate for yourselves in about half an hour whether you think that's a job that I should be having or not. Um, But one of the things that we tell students when we are teaching them to prepare a sermon is to take their text and to read it backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and look for the, what I might call the bumps, the bits that jar, the things that surprise, the, um, the huh moments. So following my own advice, this is what I did when I came to prepare this this week. And I started reading this and it didn't take me very long before I got to the huh 
moments because actually I think this passage is absolutely full of them and I think they might appear here with some of them that really struck me as I was reading it and I want to just raise these questions at the beginning and then perhaps we'll pick them up again at the end. If you've been listening to this sermon series, if you've been here over the last few Sundays that you've been doing Galatians, I'm pretty sure that you will have been talking about freedom. Yeah? Not if you've been talking about freedom. Yeah. Good. Excellent. I'm pretty sure that you will have been talking about the fact that um, Paul is writing to these Christians, telling them that these Gentile Christians, telling them they don't need to be circumcised, they don't need to follow the law of Moses, that they're saved by faith and by grace. Yes, is that all familiar themes? Yeah. And that's what Paul has been doing up to now. So if we now read these verses, I think we should be a little bit surprised because he starts talking about the law of Christ. I think that's a huh moment. Paul, in this letter where he's been talking about our inability to stand before God through our own obedience, says, a man reaps what he sows. Huh? In this letter where Paul has been going on and on and on and on about freedom, he uses an awful lot of should language. Huh? And then there's this bizarre little bit, which um, the translators of the NIV have kind of got around a little bit, but there's this language of burden. And in one minute he says carry each other's burdens, verse 2, and then in verse 5, he said each one should carry their own load. Huh? Okay, so there's a few huns to be going on with. Hold those in your mind, and we're going to go through. What we're going to look at is three responsibilities that I think Paul asks the church to, to, uh, to take seriously. And then we're going to think about two attitudes, it's kind of three, two, one today as it happens. And then we're going to think about one principle. But I'm going to spend most of my time talking about the first point, so don't panic. All right. So three responsibilities that Paul asks the church to take seriously. And the first one is in verse one. And it's the responsibility to restore the believer who has been caught out in sin, caught up in sin, who's been not caught out as in found out, but has been sort of um, entrapped by sin, if you like. And this word restore is actually the word that you would use if you broke a limb and went to the doctor to get it set. That's the word. It means it quite literally set straight. And we use that phrase, don't we? Set straight in English. And I think we've kind of forgotten the, uh, the, the dead metaphor behind it. But it's about having a limb corrected and set straight. Brothers, if someone is, brothers, it's masculine language, but as you know, it addresses women as well. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Restore him gently. Not punish him, not shame him, not publicly humiliate him, but should restore him. Now, who, who should do this? Who should do this? In my translation I've got in front of me, it says, you who are spiritual. In the more, um, slightly more modern NIV translation, it says, you who live by the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, 
if you read Paul, if you read Galatians, and if you read the rest of Paul, you will know that Paul goes on and on about the fact that every believer has the Spirit. The Spirit is the defining mark of those who are believers in Jesus Christ. So this isn't a call to some sort of spiritual elite. This isn't a call to those in leadership of the church, not those alone anyway. This is a call to every believer. You who are spiritual, in other words, you who are born of the Spirit. If somebody is found out in sin, you who are born of the Spirit should restore them. You should set them straight. And how should you do it? Second half of verse 1, gently, quite literally, with a spirit of gentleness. And knowing our own fallibility, knowing that you too might be caught by the same sin or another one. Do we do this? Do we actually do this? There are kind of two extremes that I think we tend to drift towards one or the other, and I don't think we're very good at walking a middle path. One extreme, I think it's the less common one these days, is the extreme of kind of heavy shepherding. This was a a big movement. Those of you who've been Christians a few decades will know that back in, I think, about the 80s, there was a movement which became known as heavy shepherding, where leaders would um, have very directive um, ways of addressing very practical things in other people's lives. So your leader might say to you, this is how much money you can keep out of your salary, and the rest you must give to hit this, this, or this. A leader might say to you, this is what you should be doing in your married life. This is what you should be doing with your children. And we give you very specific direction. Heavy shepherding, it was called. And um, it was frankly abusive quite often. And there were many people, there are people who still do not darken the doors of a church today because they were damaged by heavy shepherding 30 or 40 years ago. And that's one extreme. And the point about that is it was taking place, in its worst form anyway, without accountability, without any reciprocity. That's one extreme. The other extreme, though, is that we're so overcome by what I might say is a false humility. And when I say false humility, I don't mean that we're kind of, um, that we're pretending to be something we're not, but we are falsely humble. We are so afraid to speak a word of truth to a brother or sister that we'd rather keep silent and watch them run under a bus. Does that sound familiar? And I think that's the extreme that we're much more likely to go to these days. A fear of being holier than thou, perhaps, or being seen to be holier than thou. And also the uh, pervasive effect of individualism, which runs right through our society, doesn't it? But it's not a biblical principle. I'd love to talk about that with you further, but I haven't really got time. But Paul is absolutely in line with what Jesus taught. If you are familiar with Matthew 18, you don't need to turn to it really, but Matthew 18 says this, or Jesus in Matthew says this, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, as someone to be won back. 
We need to take these words seriously. We need to not be afraid to say to a brother or sister, as people used to do in the old days, how is your walk with the Lord? Or you can phrase it how you want to. But to ask those questions of one another. We need to be afraid. We need not to be afraid to give a corrective word. In humility, knowing our own human frailty, but to prevent somebody from running under a bus. In practice, how might we do this? And I suspect many of you are doing this already, but I I don't know. And that's the beauty of being an outside speaker now. Um, I suggest there are two different ways, in practical sense, of how this can happen. The first is a sort of symmetrical relationship. And I think we've got a little... Yeah, here we are. It's me trying to be clever. Um, You might be in small groups... And probably not much bigger than this for this sort of purpose. A place where there's honesty, a place where there is um, confession, a place where there is um, an ability to pray for one another at our most vulnerable points. And that's what I would call a symmetrical relationship of mutual encouragement and mutual correction. And these can be really helpful places, really helpful places for growth. Another option is an asymmetrical relationship. Now, this isn't a move towards heavy shepherding again, but it looks a bit like this, and I've color-coded it to try and make it clear. This is the sort of idea of spiritual direction, where you go to somebody who is a companion to you, but it's not a symmetrical relationship. They're they're listening to you rather than both of you listening to the other, if you see what I mean. Um, But the point is that they are also accountable. It's not a pyramidal thing, but it's a network. So if you look at the person on the left, if you like, who is yellow, they are um, offering spiritual direction to those sort of white people to the far left, you see. But they also are receiving spiritual direction from this person, the bottom, who's in yellow, who is receiving spiritual direction from the person above who's in yellow, who is also... Do you see what I mean? It's a network. It's It's not a pyramid. It's not a hierarchy. There is accountability and there is an element of reciprocity, although it works within the community and not between one and the other. Those are both good models. We don't have to use one and reject another. But one way or another, we need to take these, this, this call seriously to encourage one another and, where necessary, to offer a corrective word to one another. That's the first thing that Paul says in these verses. The second thing, our second responsibility is to bear one another's burdens. Verse 2, carry one another's burdens. What does he mean by this? Well, I think partly he's reaching back towards what he's just said. I think if we are in these relationships of accountability, these relationships of honesty, these places of sometimes confession, then actually we need to carry one another's pains, we need to carry one another's struggles in prayer. We need to uh, carry one another's sense of um, uh, carry one another's confessions. But there's also, in a very practical sense, Paul is talking about hard cash, and we can't get away from that in these verses. It's, it's very clear if you look hard enough at it. I haven't got time to prove that to you, but I wonder if you'll take my word for it. Responsibility for one another's financial burdens. Goodness gracious me, well, there's a blow against individualism, isn't there? What might that look like? What might that look like in our churches if we took that seriously? And we notice that he he appeals to the law of Christ. And I've already referred to this. This is one of those, huh? 
things. What's he talking about? The law of Christ. He's just been saying we don't want law. But carry one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Not the law of Moses that he's just spent the previous five chapters saying that the Galatians don't need to worry about. But this is in alignment with the example and the teaching of Christ. And we'll talk a bit more about that in just a minute or two. That's the second responsibility. So responsibility to restore one another. A responsibility to bear one another's burdens, even financial ones. And then thirdly, skipping along a little bit, in verse 6, provide for the ministry. Verse 6, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Again, in line with Jesus, who is in line with the Old Testament. Jesus in Luke says this, Luke 10 verse 7, if you wanted to look it up later. He says this, when you enter a house, first say peace to to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, we'll return to you. Stay in that house, listen, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Now, I think you're probably quite good at this in this church, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's in the passage. Ministry should be supported financially. Sometimes, Paul in fact does this, sometimes a minister will say to a congregation, that's fine, I can manage, I don't need financial support. But that is for the minister to say, not for the congregation to say. The congregation's responsibility is to provide for those who feed them. And that's really clear, really clear, and it runs through both the Old and the New Testament. And that's what the whole idea of a ministerial stipend is about. It's not payment. It's not payment for services rendered. It's financial provision so that that person can be released to serve God among you. That's what a ministerial stipend is about. So that's the third responsibility that Paul wants to talk about. How how do they join together And how do they connect with everything that has gone before? Hold that thought. Because now he's going to talk to us about two attitudes with which we need to do this. We're going back now. We're going back to verse 3. It says this, If anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. The point is this. If we are correcting one another when necessary, if we are restoring one another, if we are providing financially, whether it's for those who are impoverished or for those who are serving in ministry, actually there's a real danger that we might think something of ourselves. Do you think? There's a real danger that we might get just a little bit above ourselves. How can we restore one another in a way that doesn't do that? And how can we give in a way that doesn't build that within ourselves? How can we support one another in a way that doesn't boost our own pride and our own egos? 
Well, here's just a few thoughts, something you might want to go away and think about. Think about the power dynamics when you give. Think about how you can level power, even when you are exercising power, as it were, by giving or supporting in a financial way. Think about reciprocity, about I may give financially, but what can I receive? What am I receiving? So that this is a reciprocal relationship, not a relationship of dependence and, as I say, an exercise of power. Sometimes we need to do it anonymously to avoid that. Sometimes we need to be sure to do it in relationship. And I think that's particularly important when we give overseas, that we aren't the, 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 the rich white benefactors, but that we do something in relationship and that we receive back. Giving needs to be without condition because that's how God has given to us. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In other words, don't get above yourself. That's the first attitude. Don't think too highly of yourself. And then the second one in verses um, four and five. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. In other words, your main priority is your own spiritual health, not someone else's. You know, Jesus says something about logs and specks. Yeah? Take the log out of your own eye before you see to the speck in someone else's eye. Don't be a busybody. There are times when we need to offer words of encouragement and correction, as we've seen. But that's not your main priority. Your main priority is to see to your own spiritual development and carry your own load. No one appointed you as a guardian of morality. Don't be a spiritual curtain twitcher. (laughs) Two attitudes in which we should fulfill, with which we should fulfill these responsibilities. And then one principle... And the principle is in verses 7 to 9. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So the principle is this, sow to the Spirit and look for the harvest. Now what on earth does that mean? What does it mean to sow to the Spirit? It's very easy to think that that means do lots of spiritual things and don't do anything that's sort of worldly, like cooking or giving people lifts or... Do the spiritual things. But these verses come right in the middle of this very practical section. What's Paul been telling us? He's been telling us to speak words of encouragement and correction to one another. He's been telling us to look out for one another financially. Sowing to the Spirit can be a very, very practical 
thing. It might mean investing in someone's life, investing your time in someone's life. That's a very practical thing. Sowing to the Spirit might mean blessing someone financially. That's a very practical thing. Sowing to the Spirit might mean investing in ministry. That's a practical thing. Sowing to the Spirit might mean turning up on Saturday the 23rd of July and clearing some gardens or whatever it is. (laughs) That's a very practical thing. Because we have no permission in this chapter to see some sort of spiritual secular divide. Spending money can be an absolutely spiritual sowing. And correcting somebody pridefully can be sowing to the flesh. It's not about whether it's a practical thing or sort of airy-fairy thing. It's about whether we are doing it in a Christ-like attitude. That's what spiritual sowing is all about. That's the principle. Sow to the Spirit and look for the harvest. So, back to these problems that we raised at the beginning, those huh moments when we read the passage. Now, it's, it's easy to get around this if we want to rule a line between chapters five and chapters, cha- between the first five chapters and chapter six. If we want to say, well, in the first five chapters, Paul has been setting out his theology. And now in chapter six, he's moving on to something practical. And so he's kind of changed his language. He's changed his mind. He's saying something practical now. And, and all the p- sort of theological stuff he's done doesn't really count when he gets onto the practical stuff. Well, heaven help us if that is true. Because good theology always cashes out in good practice. Always. And good theology is never divorced from what we do, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the way we invest in lives, the way we do church. The two are absolutely indivisible. So that's not the answer we're looking for. Here's two keys that might help. The first is this. Paul is adamant that we cannot go do it alone. We cannot go it alone. Now, you know that all the way through Galatians so far, he's been talking about the fact that Galatians don't need to be circumcised because they're Gentile Christians, yeah? You've got that. They don't need to be circumcised. Now, the thing about circumcision is it's an entry point and forever a marker of the membership of the covenant community. In other words, it's a marker that you belong to the people of God. So, the Gentile Christians listening to Paul might think, if we don't need to be circumcised, perhaps we could go alone. Perhaps we don't need to become part of a covenant community. Perhaps this is all about me and Jesus. No, Paul won't have that. He won't have that because we have been given a new sign of entry into and membership of a covenant community. And I'm standing right on top of the place where I was baptized and where many of you were baptized. We are baptized into Christ and we are baptized into his church. It's not just a me and Jesus thing. That's the first kind of key, I think, 
And the second key is this, and this is the question. You see, Paul has been talking again and again and again about freedom, about how we are not tied to the law of Moses anymore. And you and I, and the Galatian Christians, we're kind of caught in this middle ground of we are no longer bonded to the law, but we have not yet received the full redemption of our wills. Does anybody here say that their will is entirely orientated towards Jesus all the time? I put my hand down immediately. No, I'm kind of relieved. (laughs) So we're caught between these two times. We are no longer bound by the law, but we have not yet experienced the full redemption of our wills. So how do we work it out? Go back just a few verses in Galatians 5. These are the virtues that the Spirit will cultivate among us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Everyone can exercise those things on a desert island. If I'm sitting on my own in a desert island, I can be perfectly loving and perfectly patient and um, perfectly gentle. Actually, no one can exercise those on a desert island. And as we are in that middle time between not needing to adhere to a law anymore, but not yet having been fully redeemed in our wills, How do we live? How do we grow in those virtues? We do it with one another. Look around. These are your gifts to one another. The virtues of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control are to be practiced in community. They are to be tested in community. They are to be challenged and stretched in the community of faith because we cannot do it alone. May God add his blessing to his word. I'm going to hand back over to Pete.